Thank you, choir and orchestra. What a blessing the music ministry has been to us today as it always is. Well, recently, some of us were in Israel. We came to the Mount of Beatitudes. I gave a devotion while we were there from the Sermon on the Mount. Afterwards, there were some of our people who came to me and said, why don't you do a series from the Sermon on the Mount? I said, I did that about 10 years ago. But when I got back home and began to think and to pray about the future, I thought, what better series to end on than the Sermon on the Mount? In my opinion, there is no stronger, more powerful passage of Scripture in all of God's Word than the Sermon on the Mount. Someone said that the Sermon on the Mount is the constitution of the Christian life. If you want to know what Jesus expects from you as a Christian, you'll find it in the Sermon on the Mount. So the Sermon on the Mount is the constitution of the Christian life and the Beatitudes comprise the preamble to the constitution. The setting on the Mount of Beatitudes is one of my favorite in Israel, perhaps Jerusalem would be my favorite, but I love the Galilee area. That is where most of Jesus' ministry came from. And the Mount was a high point where Jesus invited the disciples to come to him. So they came up to him where he gave the Sermon on the Mount. In front of the Mount, there is a pasture. And it is in this pasture that Jesus fed the multitude. It is here that he spoke to the multitude, performed the miracle, and performed uh, the, the ministry of God to the people who were there. At the bottom of the pasture, there is Capernaum. Now, Capernaum was the place where Simon Peter lived. There is a synagogue that is there. In fact, the synagogue that is on your screen, the ruins of the synagogue, actually is built on the foundation where Jesus spoke when he spoke in the synagogue in Capernaum. So there is a Catholic church on the mound, there is a monastery, and then you come down to Capernaum. Simon Peter's house is believed to have been discovered there, and Jesus was there in Simon Peter's house. Beyond Capernaum, there is the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus spent so much of his time. So this is probably my favorite setting. But it is here that Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount. And today we're going to begin with the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are paradoxical. In other words, they stand in contrast to what the world thinks. In the Beatitudes, he says, the poor receive the kingdom, mourners are comforted, the meek inherit the earth, and so forth. But they stand in contrast to the thinking of the world. So not only are they paradoxical, they also are progressive. And as we go through the Beatitudes, you will notice that each Beatitude builds on the last one. So there is progression with the Beatitudes. So we're going to look at the first one today. Take your Bibles, look at Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse number 1. And when he saw the multitudes, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. 
And opening his mouth, he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So he begins the Beatitudes with the word blessed, a call to happiness. Phillips translates it, how happy. Beck translates it, happy. So nine times Jesus uses the word blessed or happiness. But for us, when we think of happiness, we think of it as being circumstantial. In fact, the root word for the word happiness is hap, which refers to chance or circumstances. The dictionary defines happiness as favored by luck or fortune. So when we then are thinking about happiness, we are thinking if my circumstances are favorable, then I'm happy. You see, it's circumstantial with us. If my circumstances are favorable, then I'm happy. For instance, if I, if I have money, if something happens and I have money, maybe I win the lottery. I know you can't do that because you have to have a ticket to, to win, so, but how about publishers, clearinghouse, sweepstakes? I, I see all those people and the truck drives up and the people are jumping up and down and they are so excited because they have just won that money. So we think now if I have money, then I am going to be happy. Or if, if you go to your doctor and he examines you or she examines you and comes back and says that you are healthy, or as my doctor did, he said, if I didn't know better, I would think you're 35 years old. So you, you get a favorable report from your doctor. Your, your doctor tells you that you are healthy, then you are happy. Or if you get married, some of you are anticipating being married. So I, I find that man, I find that woman, and I get married, and I am happy. Or we have children. When we have children, then I'm going to be happy until they keep you up all night, and then you decide maybe that was not exactly right. But, but the point is, when we think of happiness, we think of it as circumstantial. If my circumstances are favorable, then I am happy. But that is not what Jesus was teaching here. That is not the presentation. Barclay wrote, the word blessed, which is used in each of the Beatitudes, is a very special word. It is the Greek word makarios. Now, let's look at that word first so that we will have an understanding as to what Jesus was saying when he said blessed or makarios. The island of Cyprus was referred to as makarios. And it was called that because it was said to be the happy isle. Barclay went on. They did so, called it Makarios. They did so because they believed that Cyprus was so lovely, so rich, and so fertile an island that a man would never need to go beyond its coastline to find the perfectly happy life. Makarios then describes the joy which has its secret within itself. That joy which is serene and untouchable and self-contained. 
that joy which is completely independent of all the chances and the changes of life. So Cyprus then was called Makarios because if one lived there, then one had everything they needed for happiness. If you lived on the Isle of Cyprus, you had everything that was needed to be happy. So Jesus then, when he says blessed, is describing the Christian who has everything necessary for life to be good. When Jesus said, blessed are you, he is saying this person has everything necessary for life to be good. Tal Bonham, a friend of mine, wrote a book about the Sermon on the Mount. He said, the Christian's happiness never depends on what happens to him, but what has happened in him. The happiness to which Jesus refers is not a happiness that comes because something happens to you. It comes because of what has happened in you. Now, Jesus demonstrated that when he faced the cross. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse number 2, the author says, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. The Bible says that even as Jesus was going to the cross, that he had joy. Why? Because the joy that comes from God is internal, not external. Paul and Silas demonstrated the same joy in Acts 16, 25. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. They were in prison. And the Bible says, and the prisoners were listening to them. So Paul and Silas are in prison. They are singing hymns. They are praising God. And the prisoners are listening to them. Why were the prisoners listening? Because people in prison are not normally praying and praising, singing hymns. But they were because they had the joy that comes from the presence of the Lord. So ladies and gentlemen, what he says when he says blessed, he is saying that the Christian has the capacity to be happy in unfavorable conditions. If you are a child of God, if you have been born into the family of God, you've been born again, Jesus is saying that you have the capacity to be happy, to be joyful, regardless as to the circumstances surrounding you. Now we see the condition of happiness in verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now that, that stands in contrast to society because no one wants to be poor. But if this is a reference to material poverty or material wealth, then we should never do anything to try to lift someone out of poverty. If he is speaking about material poverty, then we should never try to get someone out of it. And yet, that is most people's understanding when they come to this beatitude. They read the beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, and they begin to look for Mother Teresa. 
they begin to look for someone who has no material wealth and no position in society because that is the way that we think as we think about this. But Jesus is speaking about someone who recognizes their spiritual poverty. Not material poverty, their spiritual poverty. He used the word poor, blessed are the poor in spirit. There are two words in the New Testament translated poor. The first is penes, and it refers to someone who just barely gets by, the working poor. Someone who works, but they barely get by. They just live from meal to meal, from hand to mouth. They just don't have any extra. They are poor. The other word that is used is patokas, and it literally means to crouch, and that is the word that Jesus uses here. It is a picture of a beggar, someone who has so little, someone who is so poor that they are crouching with their hand extended for someone to meet their need because they can't. So Jesus then is saying, blessed is the spiritual beggar. Blessed is the spiritual beggar. Most of us never see ourselves that way, do we? And the reason is because of pride, and pride is the original sin, the first sin, the sin of Satan. In Isaiah chapter 14, believed to be a reference to Satan, five times Lucifer said, I will. I will exalt my throne above the throne of the Most High God. I will become like God. The sin, ladies and gentlemen, that keeps us from recognizing our spiritual poverty is pride. And because of pride, we see no, need, no reason to, to need salvation. I mean, after all, I'm a pretty good person. When I compare myself to someone else, I'm not that bad of a person. I'm a good citizen. I pay my taxes. I don't take advantage of people. I don't do some of these things. So because of pride, we see no need of salvation or we believe somehow we deserve salvation, that I can earn salvation. I do something because I am good that grants me a place in heaven because I am worthy. But if we see ourselves as poor in spirit, then we are humbled. If one sees oneself as being poor in spirit, then they are humble. That is important because humility precedes salvation. We must humble ourselves, otherwise we never come to salvation. The Apostle Paul was a religious man before he came to Jesus. He was a recognized religious man. But because of his religious righteousness, that kept him from salvation. And yet after he was saved, he referred to himself as being the chief of sinners. The difference in his life, he was proud because of his religion. When he saw himself as the chief of sinners, poor in spirit, then he could come to Christ for salvation because humility always precedes salvation. 
Humility not only precedes salvation, it also precedes service. If we are going to serve the Lord, there has to be humility first. For instance, Isaiah, it's an interesting progression in Isaiah chapter 6 where Isaiah said, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. When he saw the Lord, the next thing he saw was himself. And he saw himself as being a sinner, a man of unclean lips. And then when Jesus said, who will go for me? Isaiah cried out, Lord, here am I, send me. He saw his own spiritual poverty and that preceded his call to service. Moses was overwhelmed by his inadequacy, but that was the reason that God could use him. Ladies and gentlemen, the fact is when we think we are good enough, we will never be saved. When we think we deserve God's blessings, we will never serve. The beginning point is humility. It is when we come to the end of ourselves and we see ourselves as spiritual beggars that I have nothing in my hand I bring, only to thy cross I cling. It is when we see ourselves as spiritual beggars, then and only then, are we ready to come to the Lord. And after coming to the Lord, it is only in humility that we hear His call to service. We see the consequence of happiness again in verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who see themselves as spiritual beggars because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, whose is the kingdom? And there is some conflict concerning this teaching. To whom does the kingdom belong? Whose is the kingdom? Well, the world would say, obviously, the kingdom belongs to the rich. It belongs to the billionaires. You know, he who has the goal makes the rules, and so the kingdom then would belong to the rich, and that is perfectly illustrated by the rich young ruler who came to Jesus. You think about the rich young ruler who came, he had everything we believe is important. He was rich, he was young, and he had power. And whenever he came to Jesus, of course, he turned away, but he had everything we think is characteristic of those who have the kingdom. Max Lucado wrote about the rich young ruler. He said, he's rich, Italian shoes, tailored suit. His money is invested. His plastic cards are gold cards. He lives like he flies, first class. His belly is flat, his eyes sharp. He's a ruler. Powerful, he's the rich young ruler. Now, folks, we believe they are the ones who have the kingdom. Those who have the gold have the kingdom. The kingdom belongs to the powerful. So to whom does the kingdom come? The world says it comes to the rich, it comes to the powerful, but the word of God paints a different picture. Jesus said the kingdom belongs to whom? The poor in spirit. As a matter of fact, that is emphatic 
And it literally means they and they alone. To whom does the kingdom come? Those who are poor in spirit. They and they alone. Well, when is the kingdom? And there are different interpretations of the statement. There are those who say that the kingdom is for another time. That what Jesus is speaking of in the Sermon on the Mount is for another time. There are those who believe that Jesus is describing the way that things will be during the millennial reign of Christ. During that thousand year reign of Christ, this is the way that people will live. So it's not for this time, it is for the millennial reign of Christ. Albert Schweitzer believed that it spoke of an interim ethic. He said Jesus believed the end was near, so the Christian needed to live radically. In other words, the Sermon on the Mount, everything that we read here, was for an interim period. Some believe that it was for the millennial. Some believe that it was for an interim period. I believe that God expects us to live this way today. Folks, I, and as we go through the sermon, it is going to be presented that way. That this is the way that the Lord expects you and I to live today as followers of Christ. Nowhere in the text does it indicate otherwise. And within the context, Jesus was speaking to disciples. So if one were to say, well, this is for the millennial reign of Christ, well, in verse number 11, it talks about the Christian being persecuted. The Christian will not be persecuted during the millennial reign of Christ because he reigns. So it can't be that. The consequence is the kingdom of heaven. Well, how do we claim happiness, true happiness? You want that, don't you? You want the happiness, the contentment that comes? How do you get it? Well, not in human strength. One cannot be poor in spirit through physical means. Now, I know that you can take the monks who withdraw from society. They live in a monastery. They give up everything. They take a vow of poverty. They leave plain, plain clothes and so forth. And they believe that by doing these physical things, that causes them to qualify as poor in spirit. Some Christians believe that to be poor in spirit means that I give up anything material. That by physical means I become poor in spirit. But ladies and gentlemen, spiritual poverty is internal, not external. So how does it work? I recognize my condition. The Holy Spirit reveals to me my spiritual condition that there is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned. There is not one of us who is worthy. Not one. So I recognize my spiritual condition and then I repent of my sin to come to Christ. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now let me conclude. How does one know if one is poor in spirit? You must be asking that. How do I know if I'm poor in spirit? Let me give you a couple of thoughts. First of all, the one who is poor in spirit loses sight 
of oneself. I am no longer the focus. If I am poor in spirit, the focus is on God. I lose sight of myself. I focus on God and I focus on others. Paul said, preferring one another as better than ourselves. Let me ask you to do something. Look at the person next to you. Not me, look at the one next to you. Do you see that person that's better than you? That's what Paul said. John MacArthur said, truly humble is the one who has to look up to everyone else. How do you know if you're poor in spirit? You lose sight of yourself. You're no longer the focus. Now your focus is on God. Now your focus is on others. Secondly, we're not looking for personal position. We're looking for His glory. My friend, if we are truly poor in spirit, the thing I want more than anything else is for Him to be glorified. I want him to be lifted up. I want him to be glorified. Third, if you're poor in spirit, you quit complaining. Because you know you don't deserve what you have. Isn't that right? If I'm poor in spirit, I really have nothing to complain about. Because God has already blessed me beyond what he should. If I'm poor in spirit, I pray because I understand that I am a beggar who must have the Lord. And if I'm poor in spirit, I accept His terms, not mine. How are you measuring up? If you consider those questions, those suggestions, how do you measure up? You want God to be glorified? You put others before yourself? God is the focus of your life? How are you measuring up? Well, if you're not, then you're on the way to happiness. It is when we come to the end of ourselves and see Him and ourselves as spiritual beggars. It is then that we're on the way to happiness. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. My friend, matters not who you are, where you're from, what you've done. If you're ever going to come to the Lord for salvation, if you're ever going to be an effective servant of the Lord, you must first of all humble yourself before Him and see yourself as a spiritual beggar, totally dependent upon him. Our Father in God, thank you for this scripture and admonition. And I pray, Father, that you will apply it to our hearts today. I, I pray for those who have come to the place even this morning of humility. They see themselves as spiritual beggars crying out to you. I pray, Lord, that today that they would respond your call on their lives, that you might be glorified in their lives. Pray in Jesus' name, amen. In just a moment, we're going to stand. The choir's going to sing. We extend an invitation.
you've never trusted Christ, would you do that today? Are you willing to do that? If you're looking for a church home, our doors open. We'd love to have you. Stand with me, please. As we stand together, they sing, you come. I'll greet you as you do.